He is worthy. We're here this morning to celebrate His worthiness. We're going to talk about worship this morning in John chapter 12. John chapter 12, and the title of the message is Free to Worship. Free to Worship. Many years ago, I sat with a good friend, my closest college buddy. We were sitting through the rehearsal for our graduation. We were seniors. We were ready to graduate, finish up, and we were sitting in the rehearsal, kind of a trial run for the graduation. As we sat there and they're going through the different aspects of what would be the, the celebration, the ceremony, as we sat there, we talked and at one point I remember my friend saying to me, hey, um, are you nervous about walking across that stage? And I said, yeah, I, I am. Are you? He said, yeah, I am too. And we talked about why, why is it that something as simple as walking can become so mechanical and rigid and like terrifying when you think about walking across the stage when there would be you know hundreds of people there maybe a thousand people there we were anticipating that and we were joking about how silly it is that we you know we walk all the time we don't even think about it it's just natural we just do it but some reason walking across that stage in front of all those people we knew it would be a little different when that time came for us to do that so why is that? Why is it that something as natural and fluid can become stilted and robotic and rigid? Well, obviously it has to do with our, our overthinking, our self-awareness, our understanding that people would be watching us, and so we would be a little bit straight-jacketed. So something as simple as walking that we were designed to do would be way more difficult now, that is kind of a silly example, and you're probably thinking right now, boy, Jeff, you know, you talk about being an overthinker. You really are an overthinker. Yes, I am. Not embarrassed to admit it. Overthinker, right? So, but it seems silly, something like that. But there's something really deep and really profound to consider there. That we were designed to do something like walk, and that becomes difficult the more self-focused we are, the more we think about it the more we care what other people think can hinder us significantly. Similarly, we were designed, we were created to worship. We were created to worship, but that too can become stilted and impaired by self-focus, by self-preservation, by clinging to things like our own reputation, our own honor. You know, why is it that I was so terrified to walk across that stage? Well, I wanted to do it right and not do it wrong and not trip and fall up the stairs, not walk in the wrong spot or bump into the guy that's going to be handing me my diploma. You want to get it right. So you're focused on yourself and what you're supposed to do. Well, you heard... Brian read earlier, John chapter 12, the story of Mary worshiping Jesus. And in this story, we see a portrait of someone liberated in worship, focused not on themselves, but on another. And so we're going to talk about worship this morning. Now, a few other preliminary thoughts before we make our way through the passage and talk about this story, this beautiful picture of worship. A couple other little details. Uh, first of all, when we think about the concept of worship, I just want to make sure we understand what worship is. If I asked you to describe worship, if I asked you to picture someone worshiping, probably you would picture someone singing. 
you, you might picture someone closing their eyes. You might picture someone raising their hands, worshiping, singing that way. And that would be an expression of worship. And that's the first thing that comes to our minds, most of us at least. But in terms of like what it is in terms of the heart, what, what, uh, where that comes from, and why it can look like that, but it can look a lot of other ways as well. In terms of where it comes from, it comes from what we value or who we attribute worth to. The Old English, it comes from the Old English, worth sip, which is S-C-I-P-E. So it's, the, it's a compound word. It comes from those two, and so it's the idea of, you can hear worth there, right? And then it, what's become in modern English, ship, S-H-I-P. So worship, right? So attributing worth or value to something or someone. Now, even without regard to our beliefs and our faith, we're here this morning because worship in a spiritual sense, worshiping Jesus matters to us. But if you even think about it beyond the context of church, beyond the context of your spiritual life, you can understand that everybody is a worshiper. Everybody attributes worth to other things, to other people. Every time we experience a good meal, we are excited about a tasty dinner that we've enjoyed, we are attributing worth to that meal. Every time we watch an exciting football game or basketball game, there's a sense in which we're enjoying the worth of the athletes and their talent. Every time we go out and see a beautiful scene, this morning, going out of my house early this morning, I've seen the beautiful white snow before my German shepherd went out running, trudging through it all. It was all just perfect, pristine, beautiful white out there, right? And, and you can just see that beauty and you're attributing value to it. You're seeing something that's beautiful and you're appreciating it. You're admiring it. So you see, we worship in all sorts of ways in life, and what this passage is pointing us to is the most important expression of worship, which is that between ourselves and our Creator, the one who made all these great things. So worship has to do with valuing Him. Okay, so that's some preliminary, some thoughts I wanted us to get our gears going with, and so we're thinking carefully about what worship is. Now let's get into the text. So you can look there with me, chapter 12, verse 1. It says, Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And actually continue on to verse 2. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. So here we have Jesus in this private setting, this sort of dinner party with Mary and Martha and Lazarus and some of the disciples, and we'll see later, Judas was there. So he's there with this group. They're enjoying this dinner. And as it mentions in verse 1, early in the verse, this was during the Passover. It was during the Passover, which was the time when the Jewish people came together from all around, came together into Jerusalem to celebrate, to remember when God delivered them from Egypt. Many, many generations prior, God had delivered them from Egypt. And the significance of the Passover is, this is important, the significance of the Passover is that was the time when they remembered how God spared their firstborn and he visited, the angel of death visited the firstborn of all those who did not have blood on their doorposts of, of the non-Jewish people. This was one of God's ways of showing his power. It was one of his signs to persuade Pharaoh to let his people go. You remember that. And so the Passover has to do with God's sovereignty over death and life. 
Now think about what has just happened in the prior context, and we get, obviously, this is all building on this prior context, but if you were here weeks ago when we talked about the raising of Lazarus, there God was showing, was he not his sovereignty over life and death? And we could add resurrection. Life, death, resurrection. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead during this Passover season. Once again, displaying in the most vivid way God's power over death. God's resurrection power. So everyone is there in Jerusalem. They're all celebrating the Passover. And for this group, at this little private party in Bethany, not far from Jerusalem, they are celebrating God's sovereignty over life, death, and resurrection in even a greater way. With even greater significance because Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead not long before this. And you can bet they were thinking about that. That was still on their mind. Such an amazing miracle. So, so there they are, sitting together, dining together, no doubt still rejoicing in the renewal of Lazarus' life. Now think about from especially Martha and Mary's perspective, Lazarus' sisters, from their perspective. They, I mean, it doesn't get more impactful than this. They knew what it felt like to lose their brother. And Jesus had allowed enough time to go by, days to go by, so that they would be convinced, that's it, it's, all hope is lost, he's gone, we won't see him again until, as uh, Martha mentions, until the resurrection on the last day. She was confident in that, but she thought, well, we've lost him. So they went from that feeling of profound loss, and you know what that's like if you've lost a loved one. You know the emptiness, the grief, the sadness. They went from that to restored joy as Jesus spoke, Lazarus, come forth, and he got up and walked right out of that grave. Remember that? He walked right out of that tomb. They went from seeing his lifeless body to being able to touch him and the warmth back in his body and the light back in his eyes and to embrace him and to kiss him and he's alive again. And so that no doubt had radically changed them. I mean, they were forever changed having experienced that. And now they're here together and Jesus is with them, dining with them. One who is not just their teacher, not, not just a family friend, but also their sovereign Savior. The one who had solved their, their biggest problem, who proved his ability to do so. He had said, and we looked at this weeks ago, but he had said, I am the resurrection and the life, and he proved it. Raising Lazarus from the dead. Okay, so here they are. And we're going to look at this kind of portrait of worship, which we see specifically with Mary Verse 3, Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So picture the scene. They're sitting there reclining around a table. Now, this is not common today, but some places in the world they still do this, but the table was very low and so they would kind of lean on one arm and eat with the other hand, the other arm and the other hand. And they would sort of lean there together, reclining together. And there they are. And Mary approaches Jesus. And she has in her hands this little vial of very expensive perfume. It says it's pure nard. Now, nard does not sound all that amazing. <laughs> but it was, uh, it was 
extravagant, expensive. It's a rare plant found in India, so it would have to be imported in, and it was very expensive, okay? Worth a lot of money. Well, she comes in with this little vial of perfume, breaks it open, pours it on Jesus, and then begins wiping his feet with her hair. Unusual scene. Definitely would be unusual in our modern context, but it was also unusual then for someone to do this, for her to approach the table like that, would be considered probably inappropriate, certainly odd, maybe even disrespectful, not, not of Jesus so much, but of the other guests. I mean, it, it was something strange about this, and, and if you think about it, I mean, Mary didn't really seem to care. She just was compelled by something inside that prompted her to do this, to pour this expensive perfume on Jesus and anoint him and wipe his feet with her hair. Surely, she was thinking about what he had done for her. Surely, she was thinking about not only the things that he had taught her, the ways he had shown kindness to her and to her family, but specifically about this amazing miracle of raising her brother from the dead. And, and not only appreciating what that meant for her restored relationship with her brother, which she was enjoying having back, but also knowing that means, hey, wait, if, if, if he can do that for him, then he can do that for me. And if he's pro- solved my biggest problem, then... Boy, maybe all my lesser problems aren't all that significant. So, I mean, she, you, can, you can be sure her, her heart is, is captivated by the sense of the worth of Jesus. Now, we don't know all the details. It doesn't tell us explicitly these things, but we can be sure of certain things in light of this context, can't we? No doubt she is overwhelmed. And so she's experiencing and expressing this worship. And we can say a few things about it. It was... Self-forgetful. It was self-forgetful. If, if she was overcome by self-awareness and concern for proper etiquette and things like that, she, she never would have done this. It was self-forgetful. She just was prompted to do it, and, and she went for it without regard for how she would be viewed and honored or dishonored or whatever. She just went for it. It was self-forgetful. It was spontaneous. And genuine. It wasn't like probably, I mean, maybe she planned it a little bit, but it wasn't like she knew from weeks prior that this is how this would play out. This was just sort of this genuine, authentic moment of, of worship. The pouring out of, I mean, the pouring out of that vial is, is kind of symbolic of the pouring out of her heart, isn't it? I mean, she's just pouring out from her heart worship because she in that moment is just overcome by the value of her Savior who loved her who forgave her, who was taking care of her, who had promised to always take care of her, who had said, I am the resurrection and the life. It was generous. A little bit later when Judas says, hey, this should have been sold. And he says, for 300 denarii, denarii is like a day's wages. So they had 300 days wages. So basically, an annual salary this, this is very valuable stuff. I don't even know how to put it in modern terms, ten, but tens of thousands of dollars worth is what we're talking about here. And she just poured it out. 
which also would require some liberation, wouldn't it? I mean, people say commentators debate whether or not, well, maybe they're a very wealthy family and try to figure out who they might have been associated with. I mean, even if they were a wealthy family, still to just pour it out like that and have it there in one moment and gone in the next, the only thing remaining, the fragrance through the room, I mean, you can... You don't have to be in a bean counter. You don't have to be an accountant, a CPA, right, David, to depreciate the value here. Like, wait, what are you doing? Why would you do that? She must have been just completely overwhelmed with worship such that she wasn't clinging to the stuff. How much, how much damage do you suppose we bring into our own lives mentally, relationally, in terms of our physical health, as a consequence of clinging to the stuff, the valuable stuff, clinging to our own, our own reputation, our own honor. We must be taken seriously by other people, and, and so we just are so wrapped tightly around the axle over that. Clinging to uh, our health, and, and we all are concerned about our health, whatever age we are, it's something that we take seriously and should take seriously. But at the same time, isn't there a sense in which the more we are obsessed with our health, the more miserable we feel? And we add insult to injury. Not only do we feel bad physically, but we feel bad mentally now too. And it's just this vicious cycle because of clinging to this, this life, the stuff of this life, the value of here, the value of such things. The value of our material things that we can lie awake at night stressing out about is clinging, clinging, clinging. And we have in this scene a beautiful picture of letting go. I've had the privilege over the years of of admiring many people, people I consider leaders. And I've come to a place in my life where I almost have the, the deepest admiration for the people who take, who take their beliefs seriously. They, they take things like Scripture seriously, take their theological understanding seriously, their philosophical understanding seriously, their understanding of human psychology and world events. Take all that seriously and take themselves not very seriously. There's something spiritually healthy about that. About that kind of what what one author calls blessed self-forgetfulness. This is what we're seeing here with Mary. In a blessed way, self-forgetful. Captivate, simultaneously captivated, like taken captive by the worth of Jesus and simultaneously liberated in terms of the, all the other stuff, herself and her reputation and even her stuff and all of that. It's awesome. This was generous outpouring coming from a heart of gratitude. It was humble that this is amazing. I mean, you can think of her posture there. That's, that's humble. That's kind of humiliating and that she's stooping next to Jesus and wiping his feet with her hair. It's interesting in the New Testament, it refers to a woman's hair as her glory. Paul talks about that. That a woman's hair is her glory. 
Here is a woman using that sort of glorious part of her body, that distinct glorious part of her body, to to wipe and massage the lowest part of Jesus' body, his feet. Significance, we know we're going to be looking at this in John 13, but the washing of feet, when Jesus washes the feet of the disciples, and you think about those days walking around in sandals and a desert-type climate and all the filth and dirtiness and all of that, well, Whatever that was like in this situation, regardless, this was a a humiliating act of worship and service. This was, I'm low, you're high. I'm small, you're big. That's what all of this is saying. It was humble. She literally couldn't stoop lower in worship than she did. So the question we want to ask is like, okay, this is appropriate, this is good, this is a beautiful picture of worship, and and one of the questions that we would want to ask is, well, how does does she do this? Seems like we should do this, so how does one do this? And that's, that's a valid, understandable question to ask. But worship, as we talked about earlier, has to do with worth, right, and value, And it's really responsive in in nature. It's reactive in nature. Maybe a better question to ask would be, what was it Jesus revealed to her about himself? What was it that she was seeing? Because again, we we could take this to say, all right, now how how do I make a formula out of this? How do I now try to get, how do I try to do worship right and do it like this? And does it have to look this way? Well, that's a kind of an unusual way for it to look. So what, what would it look like today? And we, we could start analyzing it in that way and how do we, how do we do this? But if we do that, we go down that path, there, there's some appropriateness to that, but my concern would be that we would miss the heart of it. We would miss the essence of it. We would miss the whole point of it, which is what was being seen by Mary, what it was she was valuing, what it was she was appreciating. The issue is not so much about what we are supposed to do as is it, is it, it is about what God reveals to us about himself and his worth. This is the value of our faith in an increasingly post-Christian era in which we are living, in our society and around the world, and people are abandoning religion altogether, certainly many abandoning Christianity, and all sorts of reasons for that, but to think that we're too sophisticated for this sort of thing, and yet, how needed, how much we need this kind of help, this kind of rescue, this kind of transcendence, this kind of value, one who is worth everything, who offers to rescue us and offers just like back then, it's still the same today, like our biggest problems are human sin and death, sin and death, and and here he has shown his sovereign ability to overcome sin and death. He's going to continue to display it throughout his life as he fulfills all of the law, finishes his life, goes to the cross, dies there as a satisfaction, dies there as an atoning sacrifice, dies there like the the ultimate Passover lamb so that we might be spared. And then he, third day, rises again from the dead and says, because I live, you'll live also. So he's he's done all this for us. We We are that well provided for and taken care of. Maybe it's that we need to see more clearly how how that is true. Maybe if God shows himself more to us and we appreciate more how he's pleading with us to let go of the things that we cling to that destroy us, maybe if we understood that, we would 
maybe we too would experience worship. We, we talk about as leaders, uh, we had a leadership meeting last night, and, and we've had many, and we talk about as leaders just wanting this to be a place of worship for people to be able to come together and learn of the goodness of God and experience the goodness of God and worship and celebrate the goodness of God. And, and a part of that conversation is recurringly we talk about we just, we're dependent upon God to stir the hearts of His people, to set free the hearts of His people so that they might, so that you might, so that I might worship freely. With authenticity, not fabricated, not contrived, not just following formulas. It might look like singing with your hands up. It might look like singing with your hands in your pocket, but your heart is overflowing either way. And it's because you've seen something about your Creator God, and you know that He's, in those moments, you know that He's real, and you know that He cares about you. You know that He's forgiven your sins. You know that He's assured you of eternal life. You know that He's with you. He's never going to leave you or forsake you, no matter the aches, the pains, the losses, the frustrations, the griefs. You know that He's good. You see Jesus, you see everything he represents, you you read these pages and you say, yes, he lived thousands of years ago and that same Savior presides in heaven over all and he loves me and he secured me and he says I belong to him and he cherishes me just like he cherished Mary and that family thousands of years ago. And something in your heart says, thank you, God. Thank you. You're so good. So God, he knows how to... uh, Turn us into worshipers. So that's the portrait of of Mary. Sadly, there's this contrast. We're going to end on a similar note, but we have to look at this contrast. Look at verse 4. We have the betrayal of Judas here. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. So whose interest is Judas looking out for? On the surface, it looks like, sounds like, based on what he says, that he's looking out for the poor. But whose interest was he really looking out for? Number one, he was looking out for his own interest. It's also intriguing. This is Judas. It's like the most notorious, the most infamous person of human history, Judas Iscariot. And yet he seems to be really preoccupied and concerned with the right thing to do here. Like the right thing would be for this to be sold and the money to be given to the poor. After all, Jesus had said things like that, rich young ruler, go sell all that you have, give to the poor, come follow me. It's not like Jesus didn't say things like that, he did. So in terms of like the letter of the law, he has a valid point, kind of. He's focused on doing it the right way. And yet, ironically, married to that is his own self-absorption, isn't it? I mean, it's explicit. Well, yeah, he wanted to sell that perfume and get that money because he knew he could dip into it and take some of it. Take it for himself. Do you see how, in essence, that's still that same self-interest? Things kind of coming back around. How, How does this serve me in some way? This is one of the alternatives or, or one of the contrasts to worship that takes place in that fallen part of us, our fallen heart, our fallen fleshly mindset, both different terms Scripture uses, the old self, things like that. Those terms that just speak of the, the fallen part of us that's blind to the things of God, that's always angling, always trying to get things for itself, even can hijack 
spiritual things, religious things for self-interest. This is the opposite of worship. In the height of irony, maybe focused on getting things right, doing things the right way, and yet really it's kind of on the surface or supposedly about God, but in reality it's still just about me and what I'm getting out of it. It's probably an overused example, but because I think it's so helpful, I'll share it again. Uh, it's, it's, and this is sometimes me. It's the, it's the Christian dad who's very serious about obedience to the law of God, the commands of God, because if my kids obey the commands of God, life is easier for me. Can you relate to that in any way? <laughs> it, it's the concern that, that we have to, to manage things, to control things, to control people, to do things the right way. And so often it's still just kind of like everything comes back around to how does this somehow improve things for me? It can be self-focused. This is, this is the sort of spirit of betrayal, the spirit of Judas Iscariot and the spirit that resides within that fallen part of us. And the part that needs to be rescued, the part that needs to see God for who he is and needs to be liberated and needs to have the chains fall off and needs to have the the death grip pried off the things that we just think we need so badly, whether it's money, actual money like Judas, or whether it's our reputation, someone has to take me seriously, or whatever it is. uh, This came to mind as I was studying this past week. You know, the old rhyme from the Disney movie is it's no white one of the, oh, I'm terrible with the Disney princess movies I don't know my girls have seen all of them Tangled's the only one I like at any rate the one with uh, mirror mirror on the wall who's the fairest of them all which one is that it is Snow White okay I was right okay so Snow White mirror mirror on the wall who's the fairest of them all So often is it not that our lives, even sometimes sadly our Christian lives, are like this constant look in the mirror, constant evaluation, constant am I doing it right, is so-and-so doing it right? I mean, Judas is here, not Jesus, sorry, Judas is here uh, sitting in judgment on what what Mary's doing. It sounds like he's even making kind of an accusation against the other people for letting her do it. Here he is judging, focused on, and, and in meanwhile, it's all this just self, this toxic, sick self, 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 poisonous stuff. It's such a contrast, isn't it? It's such a contrast. The fleshly heart can dress itself with the robes of religion and morality and can still be filled with greed, just like Judas pleading for the right thing to be done, judging others for seemingly neglecting the right thing and privately harboring selfish ambitions and lusts. Sounds and feels familiar. Definitely does to me. I'm a vocational Christian. This is my job. I've made made it my mission to be good at this. I mean, by both my own personal discipline, but also schooling and everything else. And so... I can um, relate to how seductive this all is. Years ago, coming out of seminary, spending all this time, all this you know, years and years of education and spending all this money and, and trying to become like the ultimate sermon communicator, like the ultimate preacher guy. And, and I remember at times, and uh, Jill, I don't know if you remember this, 
But there's times where we would talk on a Sunday afternoon, and those are always for just a little window into our world. Pastor Rob would relate to this. But the, the moments of like you've now you've preached your sermon, you've left church, you're driving home and talking with your wife on the way home. And you, you don't really, part of you wants to ask, hey, how did that seem, how the message go today? And the other part of you doesn't really want to ask because you know your wife's going to be completely honest with you. So I remember sometimes having these conversations and, and Jill just saying, well, you, you know, you just seemed, you didn't seem to be free or just enjoying what you were talking about. Like, and, and, and at the time, I didn't even realize it, but in retrospect, and, and I, it's not like I've conquered this, but I, I realize now, especially in those early days, trying so hard to get it right, to say everything precisely right with the choice of words I use, the illustrations I use, the different cross-references I turn to, all the details of trying to nail every single thing right down to the minutes and the time and the reaction. and the, I mean, there's so much to manage that I was just completely in a straitjacket. Can you relate to that in any sense in your life? Watching yourself or knowing other people are watching you and you're just, and even at that time, I was just convinced that, hey, this is how the glory of God is like advanced. This is how it's done. And so I've got to do the things. And yet through trials and suffering and hardship and losses and other things, things God graciously brings you to, you see, oh, wow, so much of that was still just kind of goes out this way and then comes right back to how's that coming back to me? How's that look? How do I look? And how do people look at me? And what is, how do people value me? And so on and so forth. And it's all so, so clear in retrospect, but it's all still so seductive in the day-to-day for all of us to lose sight of what we've been saved for. The, the very essence of our salvation, as I think it's Augustine that said, the essence of sin is man curved in on himself. The essence of sin is man curved in on himself and here comes a loving God who says you're killing yourself and I'm here to turn you toward me. I'm going to show you my glory. You're going to learn to celebrate the reality of from him and through him and to him are all things. To him belongs the glory forever and to experience in that look of wonder, freedom. Freedom from the miserable myopic, self-focus, analytical, picking myself and everyone else and everything else apart every moment of my life, which is not fun. So Jesus sets free, and, and, I, and I know, though there's lots of things about this I would love to know and I'm curious about and don't know, I, I, I know there's a big difference between Mary and Judas in this scene. And Mary was seeing Jesus and his value, so much so, she didn't give a rip what anyone else was thinking, feeling, saying, didn't matter. Just so caught up in the moment of, wow, thank you, God. You have saved me. You love me. There's a song old, I think, 80s, 90s song, One Day Love Will Find You. Break the chains that bind you. And that's a secular song, but like the most profound manifestation of that is when the love of God finds you and breaks the chains that bind you and he sets you free forever. And so when you see the images in the Old Testament, New Testament, of people in heaven forever explosively joyful and free 
It's because they're free in the love of God. Overcome by the love of God. Rescued by the love of God. And finally free from this. And you and you know what I'm talking about? I don't even have to say words, just sounds. You know what I'm talking about? Because life so often feels that way, doesn't it? It's so good. And so, so Judas gives this kind of rebuke to Mary, and Jesus responds, verse 7. Therefore, Jesus said, Let her alone. Ah, oh, man, we could park there for a while. Leave her alone. And Judas kind of embodying here the accuser, right? The accuser who just condemns, just beats you down, judges you unfit, says, yeah, keep that law over you and everybody else. You're not enough. You'll never measure up. You're not pleasing to God. You're not enough for yourself. You're not enough for other people. Just a beat down, a beat down, a beat down. Here's Jesus. Leave her alone. She's mine. She's free. Just do whatever she wants. If she wants to worship me like this, go pound sand. She's free. Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. In ways beyond even what she understood, Jesus knows his death is coming. This is like a foreshadowing of, of her preparing even his body for his ultimate sacrifice. He says, for you always have the poor with you, but you don't always have me. Hey, there's a time for that. There's a place for that, kind of generously serving the poor. And there would be plenty of opportunities for that. But for right now, this is what is most necessary, that Mary sees who I am and values me. And that is her salvation. And she's free, so leave her alone. My heart is that that spirit of Christ, protection of liberated sinners, would characterize even our church. People are free to come and worship here. And the spirit of the grace of God, the amazing generosity of God, overcome by how kind he has been to us and protected by him in that sense. So he says, that, hey, the poor you always have, but you don't always have me. And this is a very significant moment and a powerful moment. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this awesome, vivid portrait of both worship and betrayal. And really, because of who we are, we can identify with, with both, and we more want to identify with Mary. We sense the, the gravitational pull of the flesh in, the, in our day-to-day. We experience the enslaving misery of self-focus, self-preservation, self-promotion, self-protection, self-interest, self-preservation. We experience it all too often, and it is binding and burdensome. And we are so grateful that in moments like this and in moments of clarity throughout our weeks, through fellowship, through time in your word, through hearing sometimes a good song, just the ways that you open our eyes to see your value, the ways that you draw us back to yourself, the ways that you 
unveil before us your glory, both through your word and the marvel and the wonder of the gospel story that you tell from cover to cover in Scripture, all the amazing details and how all the 66 books fit together perfectly and harmoniously, all pointing to the redemption that's coming or that has come through Jesus. And we take these little scenes like Mary pouring expensive oil and perfume on the feet of Jesus and we, we see vividly an expression of worship and gratitude and thankfulness for that redemption, for that salvation. And our hearts are stirred. We imagine the fragrance filling the room and we want, God, for our worship to be like a fragrant aroma before you a pouring out of our hearts all because of your amazing worth please continue by your spirit to help us thank you that you're committed to never leaving us or forsaking us thank you for telling us that if you didn't spare your own son you will not withhold anything else that we need help us to believe that Help us even as we go into this, the next few minutes just to um, be able to, with the simplicity of communion, to partake of that together, celebrating, again, the worth of Jesus. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.